You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 as we resume the study of the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the evil one, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to make like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, We do have Redemption Hill kids this morning, so if that serves you. We have Redemption Hill kids for ages 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9. Just go right across the hallway. You'll see a a check-in table right there. Thank you for those who are serving our kids this morning. Man, I, I'm excited for many reasons. Um, you know, moving to this location as obviously was, was um, kind of came out of nowhere, got an email, and you got to make an adjustment real quick. And so we're here and grateful to be here, to have a place where we can come together and, and sing praises to the Lord. And, and heck, it's the same floor plan. So it's not like we got confused and we walked in. You walk in, you take a left, and we meet right there. So uh, just, I'm thankful to God that we get to gather. I know Radiant, there's a bunch of road construction. And at the end of the day, that construction was just running into the building itself, so we had to relocate for the summer. So I'm excited that we get to gather. Also, I'm excited because um, i got two things um, that I want to make sure we get into your hands. 
Uh, First, last week we began to hand out this book. It's called Handbook for Praying Scripture. Some of you have already started going through this and said you've benefited from it. Some of you are doing it as a family. That's great. Please grab one. I got one for every household. Uh, It'll be out on the table um, when you leave. And also with that is a prayer calendar for the month of June. Handed that out last week as well. And, and basically that prayer calendar is just to help guide and direct your prayer life. And so we have one for June, we'll have one for July, and then we'll have one for August as well. So just kind of the, the summer of prayer, if you want to you know, tag it like that. So grab this book. It's our gift uh, to you. Um, hope you enjoy it. Hope, it, hope that resource really um, just I don't know, cultivates a, a, a life of prayer, especially over the summer. And I'm really excited for this. Uh, man, I just... I just put this next to my pillow and I sleep with it. Um, It is our Trinity Confession of Faith. So as many of you know, I'm the chair of the Theology Committee for our denomination. For the last three and a half years, we've been working on this Confession of Faith. It's it's a tool, it's a resource, but it is what we believe theologically. So I got one for every household as well. This is like Christmas in June, baby. Grab one. I hope it blesses you. It is our Confession of Faith, but also... Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're tethered and we go back to God's word. We have all the scripture references laid out for you within this particular book. So not only what we believe theologically, but we're telling you exactly where we're going from in God's word um, regarding our theology. So you can grab one on the way out as well. Uh, I know I'm geeked out about this because it's three and a half years in the making, so I'm really excited. But I, I hope it blesses you in the future, just so you know. I plan to do um, some type of men's meeting where we're going through our confession of faith as, as men. And then figuring out how to apply it, right? That's equally important, right? We, we want to know what the truth is. Then how do we embody this? How do we obey God's word? So more, more on that in the future. Okay, after a week off, uh, we are back in our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. As you can tell from the reading of God's word, the series is called God Has Spoken. The series title takes its cue from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Let me read verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. So that's why we call the series, God Has Spoken. He has spoken and he continues to speak. Using the Old Testament as the point of departure. The book of Hebrews shows us what God has spoken. It's very specific as we kind of walk along in this journey, verse by verse, chapter by by chapter. What has already become apparent as we've been going through the book of Hebrews is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different books telling us two different stories. Some people, even Christians and churches, approach the Bible like that. That's a horrible way to approach Holy Scripture. And Hebrews is showing us the correct way. As a matter of fact, from Genesis to Revelation, we read about God's story. We read about God's redemptive mission. So, week over week, we see precious truths that tell us about God and the implications for knowing God. And today is no exception. So, I'm going to briefly pray because I need God's help, and then we'll get into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, first we thank you for the great privilege to gather, even in this humble space, this cafeteria. Uh, Lord, but we gather with uh, intentionality. And Lord, I pray that 
in humility, we would come to your word, knowing that you have spoken and you continue to speak. So in the power of the Spirit, speak to us this morning through your word. God, I need your help. I desperately need your help this morning. May I be faithful to what you've already said. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in preparation for this sermon, I was racking my brain, trying to figure out how to preach the passage. Uh, some, t- some passages just kind of, you know, when I study, just take shape quicker than others. This was a little more difficult. I'm, like, I'm not confused about the themes and the beauty of the passage, right? There's just a, there's just a ton in here, actually. I wanted to figure out um, how to preach this passage in a way that's helpful. Like, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit will use His Word to impact your heart and your life. I trust the Holy Spirit way more than I trust myself. Way more. But on the other hand, the historical task of a pastor is to make sense of God's Word. Like Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8. He preaches the Word and he has to give the sense that's kind of the role of a preacher. So I want to frame this sermon by picking up on a biblical theme that pops up in Hebrews 2, verse 15. If you have your Bible in front of you, you can go right there. It is this, it is this theme of slavery and freedom. To make sense of where I'm going, here's verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, likewise, Jesus we're talking about here, partook of the same things, same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. Not momentary. Lifelong. Every person that has ever existed, and I've made this comment before, it can be placed into two categories. And we see it again here. You are either a slave to sin, and you have fear of death. Like you fear it because you don't know it's on the other side. There's that category. Or... You have been set free from the power of sin and you have no fear of death. None. It's kind of a parenthetical note, but it's popped up at the Powers House recently where my youngest, her and I have been talking a lot about God and the Bible. And she's like, Dad, do you fear death? She's asked that pointedly to me and to my wife, Cherise, several times. Seems like maybe in the last two months even. It keeps cropping up. I keep saying to her, no, I don't fear death. I don't at all. It's, How can that be? Well, the answer is in our passage this morning. Christians have no fear of death. That is the second category. The power of sin has been dealt with, and there's no fear of when I die. If I had a heart attack right now, no fear of what lies ahead. None. You are either a slave or a free man or woman. What the author of Hebrews says in verses 14 and 15 anticipates what we're actually going to see in the next chapter. Jesus is greater than Moses. There's something about, if you know know your Bible, there's something about the story of Moses 
that has something to do with slavery and freedom. And the author of Hebrews connects that with Christ. So here is a significant hint that is being dropped in verse 15. Something to do with slavery. My, back to family stuff here real quick. My youngest daughter and I have been slowly going through the book of Exodus. Just happenstance, right? Just slowly going through it. I stumbled across this video series where six to ten theologians, philosophers, and intellectuals, uh, Jewish and Christian, are just kind of just going through it and talking about it. It's kind of a live commentary. Following along with my Bible and journal on my lap, it's just been really enjoyable. And then, and then my youngest is next to me. She's asking me questions along the way, which is awesome. Love it as a dad, right? Well, as the name of the book suggests, the book's main theme is the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Pharaoh had enslaved God's people. And the question is, as you're reading Exodus, especially the beginning, will God ever allow his people to experience freedom ever again? Of course, as the story unfolds, we read about how the hand of God intervenes time and again to see his people set free. The theme of slavery and freedom continues to persist. The primary pharaoh of our day is not a tyrannical dictator, but it is the power of sin and the fear of death. That is our pharaoh. The seminal uh, 17th century Puritan John Owen says this, All of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation were removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. And our passage answers, answers the question, several questions for us this morning. One, how are God's people set free? Moses led Israel out of Egypt, where Pharaoh enslaved them. However, the slavery Jesus leads his people out of is far greater. And the second question our passage answers, okay, so what then? If I'm set free... Then what? What are the consequences, the positive consequences of being set free? We get answers to both of those questions in our passage this morning. Now, if you've been tracking as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, you know that we've talked a little bit about angels. One of the main motifs here in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than the angels. The Son's nature and reign shows us that he is greater than the angels. That was chapter 1. Verses 5 to 14. The Son is exalted over the angels by virtue of his death. That was the beginning of chapter 2, specifically 5 to 9. As the author of Hebrews puts a bow on this motif, we see that Jesus is not interested in helping the angels. But our Lord sets free those who are a part of the promised covenantal seed of Abraham. I just found this particular verse striking. Read it with me. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So he's not concerned about seeing angels set free, but the offspring of Abraham. 
I mean, there's an assumption in this verse that it is that some angels, like human beings, need some type of help, right? Now, is it not, it's not the time to go down this rabbit hole, but the distinction is essential. Here's the main point. Men and women, and not angels, were created in God's image. Men and women. They are worth saving. They are worth setting free. They are the ones who can call Jesus, as we see today, call him brother. But people can only call Jesus brother if they've been set free. Now, to our two questions. Let's answer those. How are God's people set free? The answer is straightforward and profound. We should not overthink the answer. But we should not move too quickly past the answer. God's people are set free by the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Like today's passage kind of vacillates a little bit back and forth, highlighting the incarnation and then the crucifixion and the incarnation and then the crucifixion. The author of Hebrews does give us Christmas and Good Friday in just a few verses. Here are three verses that show us the necessity of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. There is no freedom without the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Take a look at Hebrews 2, verse 14, and then verse 17, and then verse 18. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's kind of explain each verse one at a time. In verse 14, we read that the Son took on flesh. The Son of God took on flesh. It is reminiscent of John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Son of God lived like any other person. He was laughing, crying, running, jumping. He grew up in a home. He went to synagogue on Saturday. Jesus can identify with your life because he did all the normal things except sin. Here's what our confession of faith says about the humanity of Jesus Christ. And I quote, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, is the true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made. So not only did he create the world, he sustains the world, and he governs over the world. When the fullness of time had come, he took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without Sin. Jesus, Son of God, took on flesh. In verse 17, we see the, the trajectory of the incarnation of the Son. He became like his brothers to be a merciful and faithful priest. The Word had to become flesh to become the high priest that we need in order to be saved. Our great high priest is faithful to fulfill the mission of God. And he is merciful to forgive the sins of his people. Like, that's good news. And then in verse 18, Jesus was tempted. 
right? And because he was tempted, he can help us when we're tempted. Matthew 4 comes to mind when I read verse 18. That's where we read about where Jesus was tempted in the desert by the devil. The same devil mentioned here in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. We're going to talk more about that here in a moment. These three verses tell us how Jesus identifies with his people, but in turn, these verses help us to identify with Christ. There are, there are massive implications for God to become flesh, but we first need to see that it was necessary for God to become flesh if man is going to be set free from slavery. Like we have to have that. We, we tend to only think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ around Christmas. And I'm arguing this morning, right now, that it is essential we think about this every single day, along with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just a Christmas thing. It's every single day. I love church history, and I love reading the early church fathers. And I, I think I quote this particular statement every Christmas, so I'm bringing, again, already bringing Christmas back to June. I'm going to do it right here with this quote. Gregory of Nazianzus from the 4th century said this, What is not assumed, says this about Christ, what is not assumed cannot be redeemed. The statement was made in response to a heresy that minimized the humanity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus were not fully human, then there would be parts of humanity, humanity of man that could not be redeemed. But as it is, he became fully human, which is excellent news for us because the cross becomes a moot point if he did not become fully human. There's no, there's no reason to think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ if the Son of God did not become verily fully man. So when we talk about how people are set free, again, we have to look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Next, we need to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The idea that it, is, that it was fitting for Christ to suffer indicates no one else is qualified or can fulfill the redemptive mission of God. You can't save yourself. Kids, your parents can't save you. Your pastor cannot save you. By virtue of coming to church does not save you. Glad you're here. Want you here every single Sunday. We get to praise God corporately, but this doesn't save you. It is fitting that it was the Son of God to save. Here's an example of what I mean by fitting. That's the word used in our text. I, I plan to build a work desk in the barn we live in. Uh, to organize my tools, screws, bolts, etc. Everything you would find in a man's array of tools, right? Right now, it's just a hot mess, the whole area. And I, I got to bring some organization to it. Um, 
And we have bolts and nuts, but here's the deal with it, like a bolt and a nut, because they're just kind of scattered everywhere. It takes the right size nut for the right size bolt. It needs to be fitted properly. It needs to be fitted properly. There needs to be fittedness existing between these two objects. The same is for Christ. Only the Son of God was fitted to suffer and die to redeem man from slavery caused by sin. Let's go back to verse 17. I did not quote the verse in its entirety a few minutes ago, but I want to do so right now. And I want you to see how the incarnation and crucifixion are connected and how they lead to Jesus decisively dealing with the sins of his people. Therefore, he, had, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, brothers and sisters, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We've, said, we've read that. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. The Son of God took on flesh to be the merciful and faithful high priest. Yes and amen. And because he is the great high priest and the greatest sacrifice, the sins of God's people can be appeased. It has been appeased. I think we're driving headlong right into the gospel. God is holy and just. God hates sin. The relationship between you and God was broken because of sin. And sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. The only way for your relationship with God, the only way that can be restored, is for Jesus Christ to take on the wrath of God on your behalf. That's just straight gospel. So back to the question at hand. How are God's people set free? The answer is really clear. In our text it says the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Before answering um, the next question, I want to press the answer to the first question just a little more. I want to press the answer because if you're anything like me, it's easy to become forgetful. It is tempting to become apathetic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've grown up in the church your whole life and you've heard the gospel over and over and over. Praise God and amen. Perhaps you're like me. Uh, the Lord didn't save me until uh, my early 20s, so I've been following the Lord for about 20 years. But even now, it's tempting to take my faith in Christ for granted. It's just so easy to forget. Perhaps you've not been a Christian for longer than like a cup of coffee, right? It's still fresh, in which case you need to hear, heed what I'm about to say. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be reduced to a prayer. It cannot be reduced to bowing your head and raising your hand because of the preacher's directive. The incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not save you for a moment. But the gospel demands you surrender your entire life to him. That's the hard part. The gospel takes hold of your heart, impacting how you parent. It impacts how you love your spouse. impacts how you love your friend. impacts, let's go to the let's go Sermon on Mount. impacts how you love your enemy. The gospel demands you fight against sin. The gospel demands you surrender every part of your life, not just the parts that are convenient for you to surrender. 
When God leads his people out of slavery and into freedom, freedom does not mean you all of a sudden get to dictate the terms for your own life. What you need to know is that you are not free to do whatever you want. It, it's common to meet Christians who take a very libertarian perspective of freedom. Right? Meaning, I can do whatever you want. I can do whatever I want. You can do whatever you want, provided we don't hurt each other, right? Christians do have liberties. But Christianity is not libertarian. It is not. If anything, there is a monarch ruling and reigning over your life. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. After God led Israel out of Egypt, what did he do? Here's the law. Here's the law. Ten Commandments. Why did God give the law? There are several reasons. But one is learning how to live before God. God gave limiting principles to know how to live as his people. I mean, think of it this way. The Apostle Paul and Peter said that they were slaves to Jesus Christ. They used that same terminology and just kind of turned it on its head. For them, the question is not what can I do now that I am set free from the power of sin and death. That is the wrong question. The question is, what does God now require from me? How does the Lord want me to live in, in his kingdom? Those are the questions. I mean, before, we, before we look at some of the positive consequences of being set free, I want to challenge you to, like, to do some heart work here. Are there areas of your life that you have not surrendered to Christ? Like, allow, allow that question to linger as you leave today and as you head into the work week. Are there areas of your life, after being set free from the power of sin and the fear of death, are there areas of your life you have not surrendered to Christ? Now, the gospel does make demands on your life, but look at everything you have gained from our text. Let's begin with this. Your relationship with God has been restored. If you are a Christian, you can see a few happy consequences of, of a restored relationship with God in this passage. Verse 10 says that the one who sanctifies the Son and those who are sanctified, you Christian, have the same source. What does that mean? Right? Have the same source. The source here is the Father. You have been restored to a heavenly father. Let's think about your restored relationship with a father in practical ways. Part of the redemptive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it helps us to reconfigure some of the perceptions and experiences of our past, especially with family. I, uh, I read this tweet yesterday, and I quote, it was someone commenting on, on his father that passed away. Our perfect heavenly father gave me such a wonderful earthly father. He was such a blessing to all who knew him, end quote. I mean, I, I hope my kiddos say that about me someday, right? But not everyone can make that statement. Broken homes are the norm. And even if you grew up in a home where mom and dad stayed married, that does not mean dysfunction did not exist. Family can be messy, 
Like if you think you had a less than ideal upbringing and God is your heavenly father, I want to extend this encouragement and challenge. You have every reason to extend grace, mercy, and love. If the father, your heavenly father, has forgiven you because of the suffering and death of his son, then you have every reason to extend forgiveness when you've been wronged. I'm like, I'm not saying that's easy. It's actually really hard. Believe me. I know. It can be difficult to embody and extend these attributes of God that we're supposed to have. But embody and extend grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love, and patience, we must. As the uh, Mandalorian Din Djarin often says, this is the way. This is the way of Christ. This is the way if you've been adopted into a family and God is your heavenly father. So, through the suffering and death of Christ, you are a glorified son or daughter before a heavenly father. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, it's not on the screen, but Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, advances this idea when he says, History is not anthropocentric, but theocentric. Not man-centered, but God-centered. And one of God's primary goals in history is to bring many sons to glory. You have been brought into glory before your heavenly Father through the suffering of the Son. So, one of the points here, you've been restored in your relationship to your heavenly Father. Another area of your freedom concerns your relationship with the Son. Because you are, because you and the Son of God have the same Father, the same source, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Verse 12. Because of the context, we can say that all who are in God's family, son or daughter, is in a spiritual and familial relationship with Jesus. We all can call him brother. That's pretty remarkable. Jesus, my brother. Like that means something. Like I, I shout out to my friends, hey brother. When I pause and think about it, Jesus, my brother. That means something. Here is the path the Son of God has taken you on. You have gone from slavery to solidarity. From slavery to solidarity. What this means is that because Christ has taken an interest in you, you now take an interest in Christ. What Christ rules, his brothers and sisters now join him in ruling in his kingdom. The emphasis on solidarity is why the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. And then he quotes Psalm 18, and then Isaiah 8, verse 18. The trio of quotes shows us the affection of Christ for his brothers and sisters. Like You need to receive these words as if Jesus is saying them directly to you. We read in verse 11, He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, that word there is actually ecclesia, you could say church, I will sing your praise. This is Christ talking. Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. The work of God to redeem and restore is remarkable. 
Your redemption and restoration, though, go further than your standing before God. It goes further than that. We now join Christ on his mission. Certainly, we have no power to save, but we point to and proclaim about the one who does save. We stand right now before God as free men and women willing to align every aspect of our lives according to the will of God. And yes, there is remaining sin. The effects of the fall of Genesis 3 is still being felt. Life can be a daily grind fighting for truth and goodness and beauty and fighting for those things in your life, in your home, in your community, in your vocation. It is not lost on God that the co-heirs of Christ need constant help. And the Holy Spirit certainly gives us help when we need. But verse 18 is such a sweet verse for anyone in solidarity with Christ. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Allow me to handle verse 18, one clause at a time. First, how did our Lord suffer during his earthly life? You know, let's start at the beginning of Christ's ministry. I already mentioned the temptation of Christ in the desert, but I want to drill down into those details a little more. We read in Matthew 4 that Jesus was in the desert 40 days, and for 40 days, he did not eat. I'm not going out on a limb to say that Christ, who is fully human, suffered in his body. He suffered specifically from hunger. And it was only after 40 days when the devil showed up to tempt him. It wasn't like a day 15 or day 20. It was 40 days, 40 nights, and then temptation. Like, and he was hungry. Like Some of us can't go four hours without eating. And in his humanity, he went 40 days. After 40 days and 40 nights, when the devil tempted Christ, he did so in three different ways. Number one was lust of the flesh. Jesus was hungry, and the devil said, hey, you can eat. Just You see those stones over there? You and I know that you can turn those stones into bread and then fulfill that, that desire to eat. And he said no. He didn't take the bait. The second temptation is pride. We all can be tempted to pride, right? Pride of life, pride in my own life. The devil takes Jesus to the corner of the temple and says, hey, just, if you just jump off, we both know the angels will catch you. You can do that, right? Right, Jesus? You can do that. Again, Using scripture, he told off the devil. <laughs> the third area of temptation is what I call the easy way to authority. Jesus, and, and, and believe me, that temptation exists in our life, right? What's the easy path? From point A to point B, what's the easy way? Jesus knows he is king, but Jesus knows that a more significant suffering awaits him. Think about that. He knows a more significant suffering await, awaits him. And the devil gave him the workaround. Jesus could rule 
over all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down to the devil and then forego the suffering that was in front of him. Jesus understands our temptations because he's been tempted. Jesus knows suffering because he was betrayed. Judas, right? A man who walked and talked with him betrayed his supposed friend for 30 pieces of silver. Right? Do you know betrayal? Jesus knows betrayal. Jesus understands humiliation. Ever been humiliated before? Let me ask you this. Is there a greater humiliation than to stand before the people in your community knowing that you have done nothing wrong? And then, and then Pontius Pilate gives this opportunity to see Jesus set free and he basically says, hey, you can either pick Barabbas who deserves punishment or you can pick Jesus who's done nothing wrong and then the people he came to save, what did they, who did they pick? How humiliating is that? They picked Barabbas. Jesus understands suffering through humiliation. He understands. A couple more examples of temptation and suffering. Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus was stripped of his clothes, was openly mocked. Then, with dripping sarcasm, Jesus heard, Hail, King of the Jews! That was not meant as a compliment. It is, in my opinion, and I think the evidence is clear, that we live in a time where Christ, his teachings, and his followers are at times being openly mocked. Jesus was mocked. Jesus understands. The Roman soldiers spit upon Christ, and they took a reed and whipped our Lord while he hung. Every ounce of human dignity, at least the attempt was made, to take from Christ, all the dignity. So in the midst of so much suffering came a myriad of temptations in the life and suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Now, what about that second clause in verse 18? I know I've already teased this out a bit. Your solidarity with Christ means Jesus is here to help. You can call him, we call him brother for a reason. And he has helped, and Jesus continues to help. Without a doubt, you face temptations every single day. Your your temptations might be self-induced. They might be because of circumstances. Temptations might be imposed on you from the outside of no fault of your own. Like you're just driving down the road, and that, that particular billboard pops out of nowhere, and you know that billboard is a temptation to other lustful thoughts, right? That stuff happens. Well, Jesus is here to help. Jesus is here to help you while you are in the desert. Jesus is a faithful brother who is with you now and for eternity. So back to my opening thoughts. There are two categories of people in this world. Either you are a slave to Satan and the power of sin and death reign over your life. Your condition is far worse than Israel when they were in Egypt. There are temporal and eternal consequences for anyone who is a slave to Satan. Or, or, you've been set free from Egypt, right? 
The power of sin has been defeated. You no longer need to fear death. God is your heavenly Father, and you call Jesus brother. If you are in this second category, you have so much to be thankful for. You have every reason to sing and to celebrate. And you can know with absolute certainty that you are not alone. Christ is with you. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.